Bring it in. Read option back here. Tuesday, March 1st. It is March time, which means March Madness Conference Tournaments NBA final stretch heating up. Normally, it would mean we're getting ready for spring training, opening day. Obviously, we'll not be doing that. And of course, there's always football drama. So we're dipping back into the gumbo pot. Sports Gumbo episode, we're reaching around, going to hit on all of that. We're going to hit on NBA final stretch, have some thoughts. Obviously, we saw Harden and Embiid, uh, as well as something about Russell Westbrook from one of the best people in sports media that I think might be grasping at straws, but to his credit, he also kind of admits that. Uh, We're going to talk a little Aaron Rodgers, Kyler Murray, these quarterbacks, the drama, um, and – Kyler Murray's kind of bizarre posts from his agent. Um, We'll get into a little bit of that as well as the MLB lockout situation. And we'll wrap up with a little bit of college hoops as we are in the month of the madness. And uh, we're just this week getting ready. We have some conference tournaments uh, kicking off here. So loaded show for you all Uh, before we get into it. I know I said we're going to do two last week. Sometimes things just happen, all right? And uh, we weren't able to get everybody together at the same time. And we're also, you know, a lot of other podcasts are taking their vacations. Football season's over. Oh, we'll take a couple weeks off. We're not trying to do that, all right? We took one off, and we're back on the grind. So read option, Tuesdays, Fridays, coming at you here um, year-round. That's, that's how we do it here because there's always something to talk about, uh, I have some personal news that I will get out here in the next couple of weeks. Um, so stay tuned for that as well. Um, but I do want to start with the NBA because this past weekend, we finally got our games post All-Star break. And Friday night, we saw our first glimpse of James Harden and Joel Embiid. Now, the optimist in me held on to this belief, Right held on to this belief that James Harden was going to come out and be the same version of James Harden that he was in his first stretch with Brooklyn. And we do this thing in, as fans, right, where we see a player do something one time off the court maybe. The second time it happens, it becomes his personality trait, right? James Harden, once out of Houston – Ends up in Brooklyn last year. Could have ended up in Philly. Something happened last minute. Deal doesn't get done. All the insiders thought for sure Philly was going to get hardened last year. Doesn't happen. He ends up in Brooklyn playing with Kyrie and Durant. And right off the bat, in those first few games, it was terrifying how good they were. Harden was going to be the point guard, right, because we knew Kyrie can play off the ball, but Kyrie's going to want some ISO possessions himself. KD obviously can do anything on the basketball court. And for my money, for as amazing as Embiid and Jokic and John Morant and DeMar DeRozan and LeBron and all these guys have been this year, none of them touch Kevin Durant when he's at his peak like we saw in the first few months of the season before the knee sprain. So we combined all three of these guys. We've obviously seen what Harden's done with Embiid. We know what Kyrie can do. 
and, and his ability to play off ball, but also break anybody down ISO. He's got the best handles in the NBA. He's one of the best shot makers in the NBA. And then you have the most lethal score in the history of the NBA and Kevin Durant. That threesome is better than anything else we would have seen in the NBA by far before LeBron, after LeBron, when you talk about just concentrated talent on a roster. And it showed. All right, those first few games, those first couple weeks when you saw three of them, everybody in the league was terrified. And the resounding feeling around the NBA post James Harden trade to Philly was, thank God. Thank God the chance of all three of those guys and the, the mask mandate getting lifted and KD coming back healthy and having to deal with that. Thank God that's not the case because now Chicago, Toronto, um, you know, Boston, go through all the teams in the East. They feel like, man, we dodged a bullet. Milwaukee, right? We don't have to deal with all of them. And yet Kevin Durant almost took the nets. If his foot is an inch behind the line last year, he's taken the, the nets to the finals at least the Eastern Conference Finals, I think we all assume they would have beaten Atlanta, and it would have been a chance for Brooklyn to get a title and not the Milwaukee Bucks, which, again, could have shifted so much. It's a game of inches. You hear that about all sports, but it's true. James Harden bought in immediately. He was excited. I genuinely believe that. He was excited to be in Brooklyn. But... I've heard people use this analogy with Kyrie in the past, and it's the perfect analogy, right? You got a buddy, a couple of buddies, they roommates, you go over, you hang out with them, and you're talking to your friend, right? Someone you might have known for a year, someone maybe you used to go to college with. And then you meet his roommate. You're like, man, this guy's awesome. It's great on great on the ping, you know, beer pong table. He's setting up fire playlists left and right. He ordered great food, great taste in beer. Man, this guy seems awesome. And then lo and behold, you get an opportunity to move in with your old buddy and his new roommate, who you hit it off with. And you're thinking, man, this is going to be the best. And then you move in with him. And you find out, oh, well, you know, he might have been kidding, but I think there's a chance this guy might be a flat earther. You know, okay, he's probably just kidding. He's probably just kidding. Oh, wait, oh, he he doesn't believe in in vaccines. Oh, oh, he doesn't clean up around the house. Oh, okay. Uh, the house is met. And the more it goes on, you realize this guy in short bursts might be awesome. But as soon as you got to live with him, he turns into the worst person, the worst possible roommate. But again, in short doses, you're like, I love this guy. And that's kind of what Kyrie has been to everyone he's ever played with since he left Cleveland. In Boston, it was the same way. In Brooklyn, now it's been the same way. And I actually gave him credit for wanting out of Cleveland after everything happened. LeBron tried to ship him out to get Paul George, all this stuff. I actually respect Kyrie for being like, no, fuck that. I'm not your lackey, LeBron. I'm going to go off. I'm going to go do my own thing and get out of here before you. And that's what he did. And so, again, credit to Kyrie for doing that. But since then, the dude is an absolute nightmare to be with as a teammate, especially given everything going on right now with this COVID vaccine and, and the mandate. And it looks like by you know March 7th is the date, ideally, where New York is going to lift that. So the Nets should be able to have Kyrie and KD both playing on the court, assuming KD's healthy, within the next week or so. So it looks like Kyrie's going to get his way here. But I don't blame James Harden for wanting to leave that. Because James Harden was everything for Houston, right? It's so easy now that we've seen it happen twice, 
right? He asked out of Houston, goes to Brooklyn. And then a year later, he wants to go to Philly. Well, now he's the guy who just wants to jump teams. Now he's the guy who, oh, we can pen. I've heard so many people say, it's like this time next year, we know James Harden's going to say the same thing about leaving Philly as he just did with Brooklyn. Yes, two times in the last you know year or so, we've seen him do this. But other than that, he was the perfect sixth man on those Oklahoma City Thunder teams. And understandably, he wanted to do more. And Daryl Morey saw how much more he could do with James Harden on his own team. And then he you know, ended up how many years in Houston? How many conference you know, finals runs? How many times throughout the playoffs did he go there and, and, and give up everything he had for that organization? If you look at just the first decade, first tw- 10 years of James Harden's career, he was drafted in 2008. So just l- look at the, the first decade, first 11, 12 years of his career – he was the exact opposite of a guy who was trying to float around teams. He got traded to Houston. Sam Presti couldn't get the ownership in Oklahoma City to pay James Harden what he would have deserved. So he gets traded and he goes to Houston. And then he becomes one of the best scorers we've ever seen. The first decade of his career, he didn't ask out. He, he wasn't asking for demands. Now, the way he did it, gaining all the weight and and playing shitty basketball intentionally, I think that is a really bad look. And so I'm not going to defend those actions. I'm not going to defend the way, right? Because in my mind, the ends don't always justify the means. And I don't necessarily think the way he went about it does justify it. However, when you're looking at his whole career, to say he's a guy who just wants to ask out, move to the next team, move to the next team is incredibly disingenuous for a guy who's been in the league for almost 14, 15 years. And so now he's in Philly, and you hear all these things. He got away from the bad roommate that he thought he was going to like. He spent a year there. He said, no, it's not for me. And to be fair, I think he would have been happy going to Philly last year. I think he would have been happy in either situation. He ended up in Brooklyn. It didn't work out. And now he's landed in Philadelphia. And the reason I go through all this backstory is because people think that this is now a blueprint for James Harden, that he's going to come to Philly. And because he bought in in the first two games, at least that we've seen so far, just like he did in Brooklyn, that eventually come the playoffs or come to start the next season, all of a sudden James Harden's going to become completely disinterested. And, and James Harden isn't going to want to you know, compete for a championship, which I, I think is completely asinine. I think what we've seen here is a combination that's going to be almost impossible to stop. Now, is it better than Kevin Durant and Kyrie fully healthy? I don't know. I, to be honest, I think anyone saying that this is the number one scoring duo and best player duo in the NBA, I think they're getting a little bit ahead of themselves. And I think they're being a li- it's a little bit prisoner of the moment. It looks incredible right now. The pick and roll stuff, the ability for both of them to get to the line, the amount of space that not only Embiid has, but Maxi. You got Thibel cutting to the rim, whether it's Corkmas uh, or, or Danny Green, you know, or Tobias Harris, or, or obviously Maxi. To any of these guys getting these wide open threes, it's very apparent how much having a ball handler 
mattered to like, like, and not to say that Simmons isn't a good ball handler, but he doesn't orchestrate an offense because now granted, very few people can orchestrate an, an offense the way James Harden does, but Simmons, because of the lack of shooting uh, and because he's obviously a lot better in the transition game when he's handling the ball, there's just some stuff that they couldn't do. And so that cluttered, you know, kind of clunky, paint area that we saw for years like I think Sixers fans got so used to that that it felt like oh everything's basketball just looks like that and it doesn't when you have James Harden and Joel Embiid and so I I do believe that they can be the best duo in the NBA and I do believe that they could be the third or fourth best duo in the NBA I think they're probably going to end up somewhere in that range and they've also only played two games so why don't we all pump the brakes on on expectations a little bit and watch this develop as it comes because so far it's been unbelievable. But I think James Harden is smart enough to know who is his president of, of basketball operations, right? It's Daryl Moore. Daryl Moore is the guy who turned James Harden into what we know of James Harden, gave him the keys to the Lamborghini and said, go run, go wild, have fun. And now He's with that same guy again and with the perfect player to put him with. Joel Embiid is on pace to shoot the most free throws in the history uh, per game in the history of the NBA. His free throws per game right now is number one in the history of the NBA. And my argument is, well, if you can't stop them, then they're going to foul them. So try to stop them instead. Well, teams can't do that. And now you have number one and number three in the NBA right now in free throws per game in James Harden and Embiid, which for Daryl Morey, again, going to Daryl is an, as an analytics guy, a free throw is second best shot you can get after a layup analytically speaking. So you're going to get a shitload of free throws. There's going to be tons of fans who are annoyed and think it's ugly and bad. But to me, like the free throw thing was something I hadn't even accounted for. And it's definitely going to help the Sixers in the postseason, even though, the refs get a little tighter. I still think the fact that they're going to be able to shoot as many free throws as, as they want is going to help them significantly. But it's not the free throw stuff that stood out to me. It was the spacing. It was the control. It was in both of those games against Minnesota and New York. They made those games close. It was a one, two point game in both of those games. And the Sixers over the years have almost always lost those games. Take a big lead, blow it in the third quarter. Next thing you know, fourth quarter, it's a one-possession game, and you're going, holy shit, how did this happen? That's what James Harden allows you to do if you're the Philadelphia. That's what he's going to protect you from. Because anytime he gets close, you can sense there's that blood in the water, and, and, and you just know James Harden's hitting a step-back three here. Or he's going to take you to the hole, and he's going to get fouled. He's going to do something. That's going to help alleviate the pressure off of Embiid and also allow Embiid to get more rest. Because you can play a little bit small. You can put Paul Reed or Paul Millsap out there, you know, as the small ball five and let James Harden cook like he used to in Houston. And then if you want to let Embiid cook, then you just keep running out the same lineups that you were pre-Hart, obviously minus Curry as well. And then you get them together and they're both fantastic. The pick and roll took two games to figure out. And so while I understand that 
we look at players and, and what they do, the behavior and how ridiculous the James Harden was thing, right? You know, how, how big he got and, and the meme that went around of him when he was in Houston last year and how bloated he looked compared to all of a sudden he's in Brooklyn or now he's in Philly and it's like, he's a whole nother guy. I get how that per, is perceived, but I'm not going to sit here and say, oh yeah, James Harden is going to be that guy forever. You know, James Harden's going to do it again next year because the vast majority of his career has been the opposite has been him committed to whatever team he's playing, accepting the role that's being put on him. And when he went to Brooklyn, it was not to be the, I'm going to do everything guy. He was tired of doing that. He did it for so long in Houston. He didn't want to do it anymore. So he goes to Brooklyn and between Kyrie's mask mandate and KD getting hurt, he got forced into it this year. In order for them to be good, he had to do everything. And I don't think that's what he wanted. He wanted a teammate who was going to be there. And when he asked for the trade, when he was happy in Brooklyn, Kyrie wasn't sitting out games because he refuses to get a vaccine. That changes your perspective on a situation. We lost people at my company who didn't want to get a vaccine. And it changed everything. It changed the way I looked at them. It changed the way I looked at my company. Honestly, a little bit better than I probably had before. But it's a big deal, especially in today's climate. It just is. And then when their decision is impacting your ability to be success, is impacting what you were told when you got sent there, what your responsibilities were going to be, I had to pick up extra work and extra shifts and do more because somebody else on my channel decided they didn't want to get a vaccine and chose to leave the company. That, that changes my job. And I wasn't stoked about it because now I had to start getting up at 5.30 a.m. to run a morning show when I had a great situation with the show I was working on before that. And so my world got fucked from it. And that's what's happening with James Harden. That's what happened with James Harden in Brooklyn. So I don't blame him for wanting to leave. And now he's with a perfect running mate, playing for the guy who made him into an MVP and one of the most electric scores we've ever had in the NBA, and playing for a franchise with young talent, with a dedicated, passionate fan base, which I'm sorry, Brooklyn, you don't have. And he has a chance to win a title. So for everybody, myself included, as a Sixers fan, pump the brakes on the expectations. Let's see this develop. They're going to lose a couple games, but it's also going to look really good at some points too. I said it last week. There's never been a player or a team that was traded, like a main star player traded midseason that went on to win a championship. Any sort of midseason trades like this involving superstars had never resulted in championships. So if the Sixers were to go out and do this, it would be the first time. Which, again, is why part of why I'm tempering expectations. But with Embiid averaging more points a game in these first two games with Harden than he was already, which was at 29 and a half, so he's still leading the league in scoring. He's still getting to free throw line, if not you know as much, if not more, than he was before. And you have this ball handle He's, who, who, who is an unbelievable passer and everybody around him and everywhere James Harden has gone, people rave about him as a teammate. 
I, I read all of the, the tweets from and the stories and clips from Nets players last year saying it and from guys who played with him on the Rockets. He's going to have his issues. I get it. But I think James Harden did what he just felt was right by him because what he was told Brooklyn was going to be was not what it was going to be. It was completely different. And if he could go back and run it back, he says he always wanted to end up in Philly. I don't know if that's true. I like to hope and think that it is. But if he could go back and redo the situation and pick Brooklyn or Philly, knowing what he knew now, he would have picked Philly because nobody would have wanted to deal with the Kyrie bullshit, except for Kevin Durant, who just is enamored with this guy and his ability to score on a basketball court, which I get. Kyrie as a basketball player is one of the best I've seen in my life. And I, I have no shame in saying that. And I'll argue people with that. But it's everything else with Kyrie that makes him a miserable teammate. And so now we got James Harden in Philly. We don't know when we're going to see Ben Simmons in Brooklyn. Right? That's getting pushed back to the point we're probably going to see KD before we see Ben Simmons. There's no way in hell he's playing in that March 10th game in Philly. No way in hell that's happening. So we have two teams that are going to be primed up. March 7th, the mask, you know, the, the, the vaccine mandate gets lifted, changed. There's a good chance Kyrie, KD, they go on a hot streak. They got blown out by 30 by Toronto last night. And until Kevin Durant comes back, we still don't know. But with those two healthy, they're as good as Embiid and Harden. They are. They're different, but they're as good. Milwaukee's there. They're obviously a good team, struggling a bit. Miami's going to be good. It's more of a team, right? Boston has guys. They were red hot going into the all-star break. The Eastern Conference is – and Chicago too. You know, DeMar DeRozan is just doing unbelievable things. The stretch in the East is going to be spectacular. And from what I've seen so far, I give a slight edge to Philly. But that's just because of the unknowns with Kyrie, KD, and everyone else. But at the same time, I'm going to temper expectations and recognize that these two got to figure it out still. They're learning how to play with each other. But it's hard to argue with the early results. It's phenomenal. And stop this whole nonsense of James Harden's going to leave in a year. He's not going to leave in a year. He's not going to leave in a year. And the Sixers are going to be on the hook for paying him like $60 million. And that's going to suck when it's like 38-year-old James Harden. But if it means a championship, you do it in a heartbeat. You do it in a heartbeat, and you don't think twice about it. Same thing I've said about the Lakers. Perfect transition, right? The Lakers spent all those assets on Anthony Davis, and now you're like, is this even worth it? Worth it? Yes, because you won a title. You won the bubble championship. You win a title, it's worth it. End of conversation even if it sets you up for long-term struggles, we'll say. But the reason I want to talk about the Lakers is Zach Lowe, who it, for my money I think is as good, if not better, than anybody else in the NBA media. Um, I think he's the best writer in NBA media currently. And I think when all is said and done, he'll go down as a Jackie McMullen, Bill Simmons, like some of these legendary Michael Wilbon. I do think he'll go down in that kind of echelon of – NBA media beat writers, you know, guys like that. Well, he has a fantastic article on ESPN, uh, comes out every few weeks. It's called Zach Lowe's 10 Things, right? Like, what are the 10 things he saw from since the last article that are um, worth talking about? And one of them, and uh, <laughs> like I said, 
he kind of calls himself out on it because he noticed a, a trait in Russell Westbrook that he thinks might, and he says, not really, but let's be nice, might save the Lakers season. And it's this idea that Russell Westbrook could take on the persona and the role within the Lakers offense as J- Draymond Green does, does for the Golden State Warriors. Facilitate, play good defense, hustle, don't shoot the fucking basketball. And you know what? He's absolutely right. If, if the Lakers bought into that theory, if Russell Westbrook bought into that theory, which everybody told me, oh, well, he's playing with LeBron now. He's going to buy in and play his role. Bullshit. That's not Russell Westbrook. You haven't been paying attention. Because even though Kevin Durant was clearly the best player in the world at the time he won his MVP, Russell Westbrook still believed he was better. And it doesn't matter if it was Michael fucking Jordan out there. Russ is going to do Russ. All right. I called so much of this shit last year when I did my my full monologue on, on Russell Westbrook and why I can't stand the guy. And if he had the self-awareness and the restraint to go out and to, to be Draymond Green for the Lakers, it would be awesome. He could push the ball in transition. He can set screens at the top. He's going to get wide open three, so maybe you let him shoot one a game just to keep the defense honest. And if you're going to give him that much space, then one thing Russell Westbrook does a really good job of is driving and kicking. And then you can find, you know, your Malik Monks on the outside, LeBron, who's even shooting well and catch and shoot, and, and Anthony Davis as well, and some of the other guys they have on that team. On the defensive end, you know how athletic he is. But that's honestly more so than the shooting. The, the, the biggest issue with this idea is that Russell Westbrook would have to play elite-level defense, which physically he could do and could have done throughout his entire career as good, if not better, than anybody else because he is, pound for pound, the best athlete in the NBA and has been since the day he walked in. But he's a terrible defensive player. The numbers scream out how bad he is on defense. He hates switching. He hates fighting over screens. He doesn't hustle. He, he hangs around. He used to do it with the Thunder all the time when they manufactured his triple-double thing to sell tickets, which is, by the way, that is what that was. All right, Russell Westbrook wasn't just some amazing player. No, the, the Thunder manufactured that for Russ because they felt bad because KD left. And they wanted to show, you know what, this is our guy. We're doing everything through him. We're going to make him look as good as possible. And you know what? It filled, it filled the seats. They made a shitload of money off of that. And Russell Westbrook gets to pretend like, oh, my triple-double for a season that got us the sixth seed in the playoffs makes me an all-time great, which, cool. Statistics, you want to put them up, fine. Dude's never winning a championship in his life. Never going to win a championship. I said it. I've said it for years. I said it on the podcast a year ago. The dude is not a winning player ever. End of story. Because if it's not the way that Russ wants it, he ain't doing it. And even worse, he'll do the opposite in front of your face. And I like Frank Vogel, and we've seen some moments in closing lineups where he's pulled Russell Westbrook off the floor entirely to try to send that message. But guess what? Russ is not going to buy into that. He's not going to buy into this, oh, yeah, I'll just come off the bench and just do my thing. I'll be a six-man. LeBron needs minutes. I'll come out just for that, 20 minutes a game, not playing in crunch time, which the Lakers should be doing. 
given what we've seen from Russell now. But if Russell had ever bought into being that Draymond guy, facilitate, move off screen or move off ball, play elite level defense, which again, physically, Russell Westbrook has always had the capability of doing, but he just doesn't. That would be perfect. Hell, be PJ Tucker. Like if Russell, Russell Westbrook would help the team more if he took zero shots, if Russell Westbrook ended up with zero points in a game, the Lakers would, would be better. But that's not how Russell Westbrook operates. It never has been. It's never going to be. And so, again, I love Zach Lowe. I think he's the best doing it right now. And to his own credit, he even said, this isn't going to save their season, but let's be nice and pretend like it could. Because he knows, and everybody around the NBA has finally started to come around on the, on the idea that Russell Westbrook is a losing basketball player. There will, for as long as there are sports, there will be unbelievable players who put up huge numbers and never win. And sometimes it's because of them. Sometimes it's because of the situation around them. I don't, was never in a locker room with Dan Marino. I'm sure there are things that went his way, things that didn't go his way, played in a really competitive era on a side where you're doing with Jim Kelly and John Elway. Sure, right? I'll, that to me is more understandable, but he goes to one Super Bowl, never goes back. By the time he retired, he was leading in every single record that we had. Every single record in, in the history of the NFL was his for quarterbacks until eventually guys caught up to him, but he never had a championship. And I don't, again, I don't know if that's because Dan Marino was an asshole or wasn't a winning player or whatever. I don't think football doesn't work like that. But in the NBA, we've seen it forever. We, you see good stats, bad team guys. And, and, and for my money, Russell Westbrook is the biggest example of that we've ever had. Because the guy is wickedly talented. Physically. Mentally. And... It's the thing that got him there, right? Russell Westbrook is Russell Westbrook because of his dog mentality. He, he's a top 75 player because of that idea. His numbers were as good as they are because he's programmed that way. But the same thing that's allowed him to be a top 75 player of all time is the same thing that's going to prevent him from ever winning a championship. Because it's impossible to get that guy to buy in if he's not the reason a team is winning. He'll take the loss as long as it's his team. And as long as he's doing his thing. And maybe that's mean, maybe that's unfair, but we have, just like James Harden drafted in 2008, we have 14 years of evidence. The closest he ever got, he had James Harden, Kevin Durant on his team. And he was the third best scoring option. And at that time, he was even a little bit more willing to give, you know, this was KD's team. Russ takes your team, makes it marginally better in the regular season. And that's about it. That's what he adds himself. Because he will not fit in to a system to other people, and not even if it's LeBron James running the team. So going into the offseason, we knew Aaron Rodgers might want to move and Russell Wilson might want to move, right? Figured Jimmy Garoppolo is going to get traded, maybe Kirk Cousins, maybe Matt Ryan. We have this list of venerated quarterbacks that 
I think most fans expect to be playing in a different uniform in, you know, in 2022. The one that, you know, around Christmas time, end of the regular season, the one I had no idea and would not have pegged as one of these, you know, moving, changing, unhappy, disgruntled, whatever word you want to use, quarterbacks, is Kyler Murray, right? Cardinals, number one team in football for a vast majority of the season. Number one seed in the NFC, longest team, uh, longest stretch before losing a game, right? I think they were, what, like 9-0, and 10-0, something like that. Like they went on a really, really nice run to open up the season. And Kyler Murray was amazing. Second September in a row, September, October, you're like, man, Kyler Murray, just electric. And he gets a little banged up, misses some games. They drop, Colt McCoy comes in, right? We start to see this kind of unraveling of their season and ultimately it ends up in losing on the road. No touchdowns, two picks, 200 yards passing against the eventual Super Bowl champs on the Los Angeles Rams. When Kyler came out, he guess he didn't technically come out and say anything, but when he passive aggressively unfollowed the Cardinals and removed all Cardinals related stuff to his bio, it was it was an eye open. It was an eyebrow raiser, right? Well, like Kyler Murray's unhappy. Like, where where the hell did he unfollow all these? There were no rumblings. There was no reports. Also, remember he just got drafted in 2019. So this was his third season in the NFL, and he's already unhappy. And they've gone out and made huge trades. They went out and got DeAndre Hopkins, and they went out and signed AJ Green, and they drafted Rondale Moore, and they still have Christian Cook, and they traded for Zach Ertz in the middle of the season, and they go out and make these signings on the defense side of the ball and invested first round picks in Zayvon Collins and Isaiah Simmons. And, and they did all of this stuff because they knew what they had in, in Kyler as a, as a rookie or a quarterback on his rookie contract. And they wanted to strike now while they could before they had to break him off on this big exp- uh, extension. And then the more you hear about this, it, it kind of gets quiet for a couple of weeks until just a couple of days ago, statement from Arizona Cardinals quarterback Kyler Murray's agent, which is a small novel with tiny little lettering. And the opening line of it kills me because the the opening line, again, this is from the agent on this graphic. Kyler wants to be just Kyler wants to be direct with loyal Arizona Cardinals fans in the great community of the Valley in stating his two very important goals and objectives. How can Kyler want to be direct if he's doing it by proxy through somebody else? Immediately in the first sentence of this thing, he contradicts himself. You cannot be direct with the fans and and the Valley through your agent. You're the one that went out and unfollowed the Cardinals. You're the one that removed all the Cardinal stuff from your profiles. You did that, Kyler. No one made you do it. It came out of nowhere. You decided to do that. So immediately, red flags all over the place. And and in the first sentence here from the agent, Kyler wants to be direct with the loyal Arizona Cardinals fans. It's laughable to me that they could read that first sentence and not go, oh, you know what? He's actually not being direct with you at all. He's using somebody else to talk to you, which by its very definition is not direct. 
I have a lot of issues with Kyler Murray right now. And I'm just saying this up front. He has fallen from graces in a lot of different ways. I talked about on the pod this year how less and less I was believing in Kyler Murray. Not the talent. I see the talent, but the durability, right? This was two years in a row, three if you count his rookie year when they weren't very good. But, you know, where he's gotten banged up throughout the season, he hasn't looked great as the season progressed. Looked amazing in some moments. And he battled through injuries and played injured. And I give him, I give him credit for all that. But this is three years in a row, right? So immediately from a football only perspective, those are a couple of red flags. And I, I've been more and more thinking about that. Well, now you're going to add in this off the field stuff where his, one of his two main goals, right? Desperately wants to be your long-term quarterback and two, desperately wants to win the Super Bowl. That's a really nice way of saying his number one goal is to make a shitload of money, is to sign a $150 million contract. His number one goal is to get paid. It's not to win a Super Bowl. He says it himself. Well, sorry. No, his agent says it for him in this thing that his number one option is to get paid, to get a long-term contract. It's not to win a Super Bowl. That's another huge red flag. I talked about this a couple of weeks ago. If you look back and you look at his past, what happened at Texas A&M before he goes to Oklahoma, this isn't new. Remember when he took the money and said he was going to go play baseball? He gets drafted in the top 10, gets a $4 million signing bonus while he's at Oklahoma as a football player. You remember that? Kyler Murray is the guy who looks out for Kyler Murray. I didn't want to believe that because I like Kyler Murray, the football player. I like watching him on Sundays. But he might be one of the most. How do I put this without completely destroying the guy? But it's selfish. He's one of the most selfish players I can, I've seen in the NFL this early, three years into his career, trying to pull the shit. This isn't Aaron Rodgers. Who, who did a decade of it and still gets dragged and got dragged all offseason. This isn't Russell Wilson, who's won a Super Bowl, been to another one, and has been the starting quarterback for almost a decade in Seattle. No, this is a guy who's played in one career playoff game, played terribly in it, threw two interceptions, zero touchdowns, 200 yards, against a good defense, but it's also your rival. Kyler Murray is sending off red flags left and right. Because if he was Aaron Rodgers 2.0, if he had just won an MVP this year, I'd say, you know what? I understand it. But this feels a little Ben Simmons-y to me. Pro bowler, young up and coming. He wants it his way. And he's always wanted it his way. His whole track record. He was going to play baseball. No, actually, he's going to play football. I'm going to play baseball. Until I win the Heisman, become the number one overall pick. Okay, now I'm the number one overall pick, and the organization has made moves and drafted really, really well and has carefully built a team around me to my skill sets. Yeah, but my contract's more important. Well, you know what happens when you get that contract, Kyler? Number one, you want to be the long-term quarterback? Awesome. You want to get your long-term contract? Cool. You know what happens when you become one of the highest paid players in the NFL? There is a salary cap, you know. 
Chandler Jones is a free agent, you know. You're not going to get these pieces. There's a reason the Cardinals did all of that while Kyler was still on his rookie deal. They wanted to build around him and give him everything he needed because he's so talented. They wanted to build everything around him so they could go out and win. Areas that they came up a little short, obviously the offensive line was really, really bad in 2020. But they added a couple guys, and they were a decent step better in 2021. But when Kyler starts scrambling and running around like a chicken with his head cut off, some of that doesn't fall on the offensive lineman anymore. At his size, when he needs to be in space so he can see his throws, a lot of that pressure, a lot of those hits, a lot of that stuff that he takes, that's not the offensive line's fault. A lot of that falls on Kyler. Not all of them, but a lot of it does. Now, offensive linemen would never come out and say that. That's not the way offensive linemen are wired, right? They're wired to feel like I could have done something better. I could have done something else. That falls on the O-lineman. That's the football mentality, but the reality is if Kyler flees from a pocket to go make a, a spectacular play, he might make a few of them in the first half of the season. But the second you get his ankle in a weird spot, the second he takes one hit he shouldn't take, he becomes a sitting duck back there. And guys like Aaron Donald teed off on him in the playoffs. So when I sit here and look at Kyler Murray spouting off about, I need to be the long-term quarterback. I need to be your long-term quarterback, right? The phrasing on that was so PR constructed, it's not even funny. He absolutely wants to be your long-term QB. But he has that, again, ahead of winning a Super Bowl, which means the long-term contract is more important to Kyler than winning a Super Bowl. He told you as such in how his agent ranked these on in this statement. And all the other stuff in between written out there, that's fluff. All right, that's coach speak. That's, don't buy into any of that as like, oh, see, no, Kyler really does care. You know, we, we, we've done some good things. See, Kyler, Kyler wants to be, no, he wants to get paid and he wants a long-term contract. And his track record from college all the way up till now, whether it was leaving A&M, taking the money from baseball, flip-flopping once he realized, oh, I'm going to be the number one overall pick. And now in the NFL, after only three years to, to, to throw around the gravitas, the reason I compared it to Ben Simmons is Ben Simmons made these claims and did all of that without having any leverage. What leverage does Kyler Murray have? Ultimately, it's I'm super talented and I'm a quarterback and it's hard to find really talented quarterbacks in the NFL. That, that is all of the leverage he has. And you know what? He's going to get a long-term contract at some point. He's, he's good enough to have earned that. But this leverage of like unfollowing the team and all this stuff, it's clear where his motives lie. And if I'm a Cardinals fan, I don't feel good about this at all. I don't feel good about him as my long-term quarterback. I don't care how talented he is. I don't care about the, the Hail Mary against Buffalo. None of that matters. The Hail Murray, is that what it was called, I think? The Hail Murray? None of that matters. 
to me, it's this, this is a guy who's not invested in winning. He's invested in getting a long-term contract. And I get it. You got to get yours in the NFL. I don't fault players for pushing for that. But the way that Kyler Murray's gone about this has shown severe immaturity from a guy who's supposed to be the face of a multi-billion dollar franchise. And for Cardinals fans and for football fans who enjoy watching him play, I hope he finds a way to turn it around. Because if he can't even be direct with you from his words, even just a, he could have typed out the same thing on a notes app and it would have been 10 times better. But instead he says, I'm going to be, I want to be direct with you, but through, through somebody else, I'm going to let somebody else tell you. Is this, are we in elementary school now? Do you need your friend to go up and ask the girl, hey, uh, I, think, I think my buddy Kyler has a crush on you. Is that where we're at right now? Because that's how it feels. The other main quarterback-related story in the NFL uh, involves Aaron Rodgers, who went on Pat McAfee last week. Uh, I'm sure everybody's seen it at this point. Look, Aaron Rodgers, I think, has proven himself to be kind of an odd ball, right? He, he, especially in this last year. I don't know if it's been life crisis stuff and a football career stuff. I don't know what's going on. Tom Brady decided, hey, I'm just going to eat avocados and never eat a strawberry again. And that's how I'm going to handle it. Aaron Rodgers is like, hey, I'm going to go, you know, do weird drugs out in Hawaii and hang out with Miles Teller and, and play my acoustic guitar and have this awful long hair. Again, as somebody with long hair, I'm allowed to say that. Um, <laughs> but I'm starting to get weird vibes and his posts and everything convinced everybody that he was, you know, going to retire or anything. And he said that there's going to be a decision that's made soon. I think Aaron Rodgers is, is building this up to ultimately say, Hey, I'm coming back to green Bay. Right. All of that. Oh, I have so much appreciation. I'm just so overwhelmed with gratitude towards these people in my life, including my ex-fiance who just called off our engagement. I'm so thankful for her. And it would have been even more of a dick move if he was the one that called it off and still said how grateful he was for her. I don't know if we know exactly which side that came from, but it was a weird post, man. And hey, good for if it's genuine and he just wants to be thankful, I'm all for that. We need more of that in this world. We, we need more people who are willing to just be like, you know what, I'm I just appreciate where I'm at and the people around me. But I also think it's a little self-serving too, in that he's trying to find the best way to mend the fence to be like, actually, you know what? I'm going to come back with green Bay because there isn't a better option. There isn't. And if he comes back to green Bay, Devontae Adams is going to want to come back and play with Aaron Rodgers because at that point, Devontae Adams will probably be franchise tagged. And Devonta Adams is like, hey, I get another year playing with Aaron Rodgers and, and I, I'll have four years of these ridiculous stats. So now Aaron Rodgers retires, leaves, whatever. Next year, I hit free agency. I'm going to get paid as probably the highest paid wide receiver in NFL history. That's what we're talking about here for Devonta Adams. So it makes a lot of sense that he would be on board. It makes sense that I think everybody in Green Bay would be on board. And if you're Aaron Rodgers, you're not finding a better situation. That defense is going to be better next year. You had to play the whole season without your all-pro left tackle and David Bakhtiari. That's a big deal. You're going to get him back healthy, ready to go next year. The defense is still going to be really good. Jerry Alexander is going to be back for the most of the season. Eric Stokes is going to have another year under his belt. And with the way that the, car, uh, the Packers have drafted here in the last couple of years, I 
surprisingly feel confident. I know the Jordan Love pick, every day that goes by, that pick looks worse and worse. But again, if you're Aaron Rodgers, is Denver and, and a pretty good defense with a new head coach, who I get it was his offensive coordinator, is that going to be better for you? Probably not. You want to go throw to Cortland Sutton and, you know, KJ Hamler coming off of an ACL tear? I mean, I, those guys are good. And Tim Patrick, good wide receiver. Jerry Judy still has a chance to be a really good wide receiver. No offense, good weapon. He's going to get Bobby Tuns back in Green Bay. It, it, there just isn't a team that makes sense for him. And maybe, again, he maybe he believes all of his mystic voodoo stuff that he's into now. And I don't mean to sound judgmental, but to me, that's how a lot of it feels. And maybe he is all in on that now. And, and for his sake, again, I hope it's true. But I also would, wouldn't – I would believe that part of that whole post and this going on McAfee and all that stuff is to help make the transition from where we were this time last year around the draft last year where it's Aaron Rodgers once out of Green Bay. This is going to be the last time we see – like, he's still under contract. And Green Bay doesn't have to do anything. But they want to work with him because, again, if you're the Packers, Aaron Rodgers is your best option. And if you're Aaron Rodgers, the Packers are equally as good for you. And again, so much better than anywhere else they could end up. So my, I said it a couple weeks ago when Scotty and I did our things. I think Green, Aaron Rodgers stays in Green Bay. And I think a lot of that post and mulling over my future and all that stuff is a way to help soften the blow for when he eventually, inevitably decides, hey, I'm coming back to Green Bay. Let's go win another Super Bowl. I do find it interesting, too, I was thinking about this the other day, how much Favre and Rodgers' careers have mirrored each other. Win a Super Bowl early, bunch of NFC championship games, bunch of NFC playoff appearances, puts up ridiculous stats. Right? Obviously, they're very different players. Favre, Gunslinger, Aaron Rodgers, precision, accuracy, don't turn the ball over. So they're very different in that regard. But now, end of their careers – Am I going to retire? Is he not going to retire? Do I want to stay with Green Bay? Am I going to play somebody else? Like it, 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 there's the quarterback and waiting. It's crazy that we have 30 years of, of Green Bay quarterbacking with two of the best to ever do it. And both of the journeys throughout their time in Green Bay have mirrored one another. Just food for thought. Food for thought. All right, quick break. Come back. MLB lockout up next. So if you've been following the sports world at all over the last three, four days, uh, chances are you've seen a lot about the MLB lockout. Now MLB, they locked out about a month and a half ago. I think it might've been end of December ish. Uh, might even been longer than that. Uh, that was when the MLB officially decided, Hey, this we're, we're locked out right now. Um, and you know, at first my, my thoughts were, okay, well, we know what happened when they tried to put together the COVID season. It was an absolute disaster. And now we know the two sides really don't like each other. Never have. In fact, I would argue it's by far the most contentious of all relationships between Players Association and the league and the owners. And from everyone who's as locked into this as 
I've seen, you know, whether it's Jeff Passan or, or Buster only, or, you know, Tim Kirchin, you know, Ken Rosenthal go through all the baseball guys. This isn't close to getting done. Now there's some things that have come out, right? One of the big issues that the owners want is they want to expand the playoffs from 10 teams to 14. Well, the players don't want to go 14, but they will agree to 12. So that came out today. So that's good. That's a positive. The problem here is that the owners hold nearly all of the leverage in this situation. Jeff Passan did an un, wrote an unbelievable article that came out on Monday, and I highly recommend anybody who's interested in the situation to go and read it. It's long. It, it's got a lot of dialogue in it that is uh, tough to kind of read. You might have to read it a couple of times, but it really does paint a picture of to just how separate the two sides are from getting a deal done. And some of the history that's gone in to why the deal is as, you know, why this is as bad now as it's ever been. And the deadline was February 28th. That was the deadline for, hey, if we don't get a, a new CBA done, we're missing games. The owners picked that date arbitrarily, right? So there is no, like, there was no written rule, contract, anything within the ML. Like, just the owners just decided that. If we don't get it done by this date, we're starting to cut off games. Well, that date hit last night. By midnight, there was no deal made, but they had made enough progress to push it back. So Tuesday, I believe it's 5 p.m. is now the deadline to try to get a deal done. So much of this comes down to greedy ownership. Now, we can go through every professional league and whenever there's a lockout or a player strike or anything like this, the public narrative is almost always, man, these greedy athletes, you know, making millions of dollars to play a game. Can't you just shut up and sign the deal so we can get our baseball back? Right. And that's always sat poorly with me. Because those are the people who are siding with the billionaires over the millionaires, right? The billionaires they get to hide behind a, a logo that their fan bases, millions of people love and have, uh, have a nostalgic, deep connection with, right? I see the Phillies logo and I think of my childhood. I think of the 2008 World Series. I think of growing up playing baseball. It means something to me. And for all of these owners, these billionaires who have made more money in the last 20 years than just about any sport has, because of how much their revenue has grown over 20 years compared to how little the average player salary has grown. There's all of these rules about free agents arbitration. How many years served do you have to have, you know, teams being able to manipulate a player and hold on to his rights for another year because, Hey, Chris Bryant's like the best example. We're going to hold you in triple a and make you play 15 games or whatever the number is, because once we call you up, we get to keep another year on your contract. So there are multiple things that are holding this up. And for the players, I actually, like I said, I understand the frustrations. The owners here, they've been printing money. Obscene amount of money, right? The, the overall franchise values have skyrocketed since the early 2000s. In the year 2000, the average player salary was only like 0.2 million 
less than what it is right now. Right now it's 4.4. That's on par with almost the NHL. And if you look at how much the franchises have actually, if you evaluate like how much they're worth, MLB is worth a lot more than hockey teams. So the owners who cry about, you know, oh, it's hard to, you know, make money. We have to pay out for this thing and that thing. Dude, you're not even raising your, your contract based off of inflation, right? You're not even giving out raises left and right. You are holding on to this money. And we've seen it with so many teams. Like, how are the LA Angels able to offer Mike Trout a $500 million contract? It's the LA Angels. We're not talking about the Dodgers or the Yankees or the Red Sox. We're talking about the Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim. That's If they can offer a team $500 million, or offer a player $500 million, any team in Major League Baseball can do that. And the only reason they're able to do that is because of how much money the owners have made over the years. And because there isn't a hard cap in baseball. But as Jeff Passan pointed out, they treat the luxury tax as a hard cap, which then makes it that much more difficult for players to get paid what they deserve. And that's not even going into the six years of, of time served, basically, in the MLB before you get a, a chance to even sit down. The arbitration process is also set up to fail for the players. Because it, you have to go through, I think it's four, if not five years, before you can even reach arbitration and hope that a team is going to outbid for you. Hope that you can prove you can make that much money on the open market. But teams don't want to pay that money. They want to keep salaries low. They don't want to dip into the luxury tax. Because that benefits them. It benefits their, their bottom line better than anybody else. And when you talk about revenue and they get 181 games a year that they get to host, 81 games? Between ticket prices and concessions and, and people buying memorabilia and all the other shit that you spend money on when you go there, including the fact that, hey, you want to go to a ballpark, it's going to be $15 for a beer. And yeah, it's going to be the tall boy, so it's like getting two beers in one, so it's still seven bucks a beer or whatever. You're still dropping 15 bucks for a Bud Light. Two Bud Lights, technically. The amount of money that they've made over the years just in operating while also being able to keep salaries dampened, which feels almost like a cohesive effort from the owners and front offices, is really troubling. But yet the average fan who's not locked in, who, who doesn't read all the shit about it, and myself included, you know, like until this really started heating up, I didn't look a whole lot into it. Until it really started to heat up. I, I understand why people say, hey, you're a millionaire. Go play the kids game and make your millions of dollars. But that doesn't mean we have to, def like, in, in order to do that, it means that you're defending the billionaire. You're defending the guy who's, who's dampening money. It's, it's the opposite of, of what capitalism is supposed to mean. There's, there's a reason that unions are in place. And there's a reason that the MLBPA is as frustrated 
as any sports union we've ever had. It's why they have such a bad relationship, because they know exactly what the owners are doing. And the owners have become so antiquated, so old school, so out of touch with what people want in sports and entertainment. They're like, hey, as long as the check clears, as long as we're still making money year in and year out, and the number keeps going up, which it has for two decades, why the hell do we want to change anything? Their money keeps going up. They keep telling people it's not, but it is. They keep telling people how hard it is and all the money they have to spend to run an organization, which is horseshit. Because we know how much these franchises are valued at. We know how much profits have have improved from the year 2001 to 2021. We can see all of that. And so they play this game, right? This, This game of like, Oh no, you don't really understand. It's like they mansplain it. They gaslight you. Like it's it's a really bad relationship basically between the owners and the players. They're the couple that that fights at parties and fights out at the bar and everyone's like, "Oh shit, here we go again." And the NBA and and, and the NFL look around it's like, "Man, we're just trying to have a nice night. Do you really got do you really guys really got to fight right now?" Like that's how bad it is. And yes, anyone who is American and likes sports, when springtime rolls around, you expect to hear the sound of pitchers and catchers showing up. You, you expect to hear that pop in the mitt and the crack of the bat and the popcorn and the hot dogs and all that other stuff that we love about baseball, that we romanticize about baseball. I just watched Moneyball last night, how much I absolutely love that movie. But the A's, who were the bottom of the league in salary cap, had a $41 million payroll. That's not that far off from what the Tampa Bay Rays did a couple years ago. That's not that far off from what the Tampa Bay Rays have right now. And keep in mind, the Rays have been one of the best teams in baseball with that payroll. Because front offices have gotten smarter and have figured out ways to win without having to spend as much money because their owners don't want them to spend as much money. So it puts more of the onus on the front office to be creative, to come up with ways, whether it's this, you know, the, the first pitcher that's not the starter, the opener they call right, goes out and pitches an inning, maybe two innings, and then they put in a long reliever, or then they bring in the starter. They've gotten more creative. They've used analytics, and they've found ways to keep the payroll down so they could go out and make as much money as possible. And again, they've done that hand after foot, hand over fist, whatever the expression is. And the crazy thing is, and Jeff Passan put it perfectly, talking about where is the real leverage lie? This is a quote from Jeff Passan on the state of the MLB lockout. If you went and got the next 1,200 best baseball players in the world, the product would suffer greatly. If you handed MLB teams over to any 30 competent business people, The sport wouldn't suffer at all. Actually, it might improve. And yet, the baseball players seem to not have any leverage because the only thing, the only thing that will open up the eyes and ears of the owners is money. That's it. You want to threaten a strike? They don't care. You want to miss games? Owners don't care. They've already made billions off of you now 
I think the players should have all the leverage in the world, but that's not how it works. Not with guys like this. And so when I said earlier, the one concession that actually got made by the players was one of the key ones, as Passon pointed out in his article, that they needed, and it was one of the few bullets they had in their round that could actually help them get a deal done, which was adding two more playoff teams, right? Expanding from 10 to 12. Because ESPN owns the rights to those wild card rounds. And adding those two teams based on the contract they have with ESPN already means an additional $100 million to the MLB. And again, that might seem small potatoes. It might seem like really like that's like, a, but that's the kind of shit that's going to get done. The owners are still hard, fast, and not willing to give up certain things. And I could run through the list. Right. And, and I would not do it as much of justice as, as Jeff Passon did. And that's why I encourage you to go read his article. But it doesn't really feel like we're on a fast track here to have an MLB season. It feels like we're going to probably lose games. And I hope that's not the case because I love baseball. I love baseball as much as anybody. And opening day, those first month of baseball season, I'm usually locked in until the NBA kick heats up. And then I'm like, all right, I'll pick you up later. So that's kind of where we're at. And what's so frustrating here is that we have a billionaire holding out for a few extra million dollars, still holding their money back, not wanting to increase the average salary, not wanting to help players reach free agency, and, and working aggressively to make sure that players don't get those things. That's not good for baseball. It's not good for the players. And um, above all else, it's yet another sign that the owners in baseball have no idea what they're doing. They found a cash cow. They found the cash tree, right? What was the StubHub commercial that had the ticket tree or the cash tree? MLB owners found theirs. And nothing else matters to them other than the money. They don't give a shit about the game. They care about what the game puts in their pocket. And that's the sad reality of where we're at. And the players and baseball fans are ones who are picking up the tab for the billionaire. Once again. I felt it was fitting as this pod is being recorded on March 1st to start talking some college hoops. And so we're going to talk a little college hoops. We're just going to run through some of the teams at the top because I, I promise you there are teams, if you haven't been following college basketball this year, um, it's, it's a crapshoot from the top down. In fact, it's been one of the most competitive and, and has had some of the most parity we've had in the NCAA you know, men's basketball side in a long time, right? There is no Baylor or Gonzaga this year that were like from last year that were clearly ahead. There's not a clear-cut Villanova team that's better than anybody else. There's not a clear-cut Duke team. Everybody's kind of at the same level, which means I think we're gearing up for maximum insanity this year. I think it's going to start in the conference tournaments. I think you're going to see a couple three or four seeds win in the conference tournaments. I think you might even see somebody lower than that make a deep run. We're going to have so much craziness and so much madness in the NCAA tournament. And I cannot 
freaking weight because it's not just the big boys at the top, which there are, including your defending national champion, Baylor Bears, and the perennial, you know, little small team, but not really, Gonzaga. But you also have some Pac-12 teams that are frisky. You also have some blue bloods like Duke and Kansas and Kentucky that are all ranked in the top seven. You got some big 10 schools, Purdue, Wisconsin, right? Schools like that, not Michigan like we're used to seeing every year, not Ohio State. No, we're talking Purdue and Wisconsin as some of the best teams. You got little schools, small schools like Murray State, right? We all know Murray State because of John Morant. Well, they kept that thing moving. They're ranked at 22 right now. How about St. Mary's coming off of a massive upset? We had all top six teams ranked in the top 25 this weekend lost. I mean, if that doesn't show you the kind of parity we have, I don't know what to tell you. We got UConn back in the mix. We have a Houston team coming off of their Final Four run looking like, hey, we could mean business. 24-4, and don't count us out. The SEC is loaded. The Big 12 is loaded. There is so much to get excited about in college basketball. And I just want to run through some of my favorite teams that we stand right now. And uh, we're also going to do a little bit of betting here. I'm going to give you some of my uh, final four uh, uh, futures that I like. And uh, we're going to see what we can, uh, we're going to see what we can come up with here. So um, right off the bat here, use an action network. Uh, I think they do as good of anybody with handicapping when it comes to like, hey, looking online, where do you find your odds? And then you can obviously use your sports book if you want to find more specific things. So uh, for the actual national championship to win the national championship, Gonzaga is your betting favorite, right? We got them at plus 350. But after that, the only three other schools that are under 1,000 are plus 1,000, Kentucky at plus 700, Arizona at plus 750, and then Auburn at plus 900. And that's the team I want to start with first is Auburn. Auburn has arguably the best player in the country. Now, Duke has Paolo, who's also one of the best players. But this Auburn team is playing in a really, really tough SEC. They've gone out and they've won big games. They had another huge win this weekend. Uh, Bruce Pearl has that team, like, cooking right now. I'm a big, big fan of Bruce Pearl, the talent they have there. But one of the things I loved about Auburn a couple of years ago when they had another really good team um, under Bruce Pearl was there was this grittiness to them. They played really hard defense. They had really good guard play up front, experienced guys. They have that again this year. But they just also have a guy who might be the number one overall pick in the draft, shaking Adam Silver's hand and going to whatever team wins the lottery. So they have not only the high-end talent, but they have that stuff about college basketball that you love, right? Like every Villanova team that's been really good, that's had those kind of gritty guards. Uh, Virginia is another one of those teams, right, that's just had really good defense. They just kind of play that, that antithesis of college basketball style of that, or, or of the NBA style of bas basketball, right? It's good fundamentals. It's good team defense. And then you have your guy. It's clear cut. Who's your guy? Auburn has that. And so I like Auburn of those top four teams betting-wise. I think – and even on FanDuel, you can get a plus 1,300. I'm a big fan of the Auburn Tigers. I think they're the best team in the SEC. 
And I think there's an argument to say that they're the most complete team in all of college basketball. Uh, once you get past that, though, is when you're starting to talk about some higher odds, right? Maybe a little bit more long shots. And they have Purdue right there at plus 1,000. I like Purdue. Problem with Purdue is they are a top three offensive team in college basketball. They had the number one offense at one point this year, but they've been ranked as low as like 180 on defense. And there's never been a champion who wasn't ranked in the top 30 in offensive and defensive ratings ever. You have to be within that top end. You have to be able to do both because we've seen it all the time. It happened with Alabama last year. You get cold shooting from three, one game, and all of a sudden, boom, UCLA takes your lunch money and they're off to the final four. So that's my biggest concern with Purdue is they can light it up better than anybody offensively, but they're not a great defensive team. And then you're going to run through your Duke, your Kansas, your Villanova. Those three, you got three championship winning coaches, three coaches have been around for a long time, NBA players on both on all three rosters. Uh, and, and all three of them play in, you know, what is normally considered to be a good conference. Duke and the ACC, the ACC has been dog shit this year. So Duke's had an easier path. But they've also played out-of-conference games that have been tough and have pulled off some big wins. And Coach K's last year, you never really know what, what kind of energy that's going to have. I don't see Duke winning the title this year. But let's be honest, it would be very fitting in Coach K's final run if Duke found a way to win. Uh, love Kansas and love Bill Self. Um, but they've also just kind of underwhelmed me. Like, I love might even be too strong. Wrong. I, I really, really like Kansas. I just, I'm not in love with Kansas. But of this kind of mid range here, we're talking like 2000, like 1000 to plus 2000 to win the title. All I know it's almost impossible to win back to back. And I know the last time we saw it was Florida and it was 0506 or 0405. I think it was 0506. Baylor is an unbelievable program. They, they went in last night against Texas, a top 25 team and beat Texas on the road with seven guys, including their top three players, their best three players, all out with injury. And they beat a pretty damn good Texas team at Texas, coached by Chris Beard, who is a great coach. Scott Drew might be the best coach in college basketball. I've said it on this pod a million times, the – the, the culture word, the buzzword culture, it's so overused and no one can ever actually explain it, right? It's a word we use to kind of explain something that you can't put into words specifically. But the culture that Scott Drew has built there is unbelievable. I mean, their whole backcourt last night was made up of guys who weren't even on the roster last year. And yet they still beat a top 25 team on the road. Coming down the stretch. Baylor should be in this conversation. And if by some miracle they get some of those guys back before they hit the run, it's a long shot. And the odds I'm hoping will continue to go up because right now they're plus 1,300, but you can find them at other places as high as plus 2,000. If you can get a good future odds on it, it may not be the worst thing to, hey, throw a couple bucks down an old, old Baylor because I gig them. I am a fan of the Baylor Bears. Uh, after that, we get to this kind of, I would consider much more long shots to win the title. But 
if you go through, there's one team that sticks out on this list. So I'm looking at Texas, Tennessee, Houston, Illinois, UCLA, uh, Arkansas, love me some must bust. Um, same thing with Alabama, right? They're all in, in the mid plus, you know, two to 5,000 range. The team I would put my money on is Texas Tech. All right. What, what's the old expression about a lover scorned, right? So I, I don't know what it is specifically, but there's some expression about a scorned lover. Texas is a scorned lover. All right. Chris, Bur- Chris Beard leaves Texas, uh, Texas Tech, after two years, after bringing them to a national championship game where they ended up losing to UVA. But they had that awesome team with uh, – Oh, the kid who ended up going to, to Minnesota, who, who I loved him when he was at Texas Tech. But that Texas Tech team was really good. And Chris Beard took them from a middle-of-the-road Power 5, whatever you want to call it, Power 6 team, and took them all the way up to a national championship. And, yeah, they lost to a really, really good UVA team. But even that game was close and down to the buzzer. Chris Beard leaves after two years. And he doesn't go to USC or UCLA or Oregon. He's not going to Michigan. He's not going to Villanova or Seton Hall or Miami or Florida State or UNC. He's not taking No, he's going to Texas, right down the road from Lubbock, going to Austin, playing in the same conference for the time being. And he takes over for the Texas Longhorns. And if you went to any other college that wasn't Texas, in the state of Texas, you cannot stand the Longhorns. I don't even know what a, it's kind of like in Pennsylvania is a good example. If you went to any school that wasn't Penn state, you hate Penn state. And if you went to Penn state, you're probably a little bit of of an obnoxious asshole. Sorry. Not all Penn state people are that way. I can only say that right now because Scotty and Vito aren't the pod. And I'm pretty sure they're not going to listen this far in to hear that. By the way, I don't actually mean that. There's a lot of nice people who go to Penn State. But you know what I mean in terms of the fandom. Texas is even worse. Texas is that on steroids. And so for Texas Tech fans, they hosted Chris Beard back. I think it was three weeks ago. And they beat the crap out of Texas in Lubbock. And then they got to flip it around, right? And that environment was hostile. Chris Beard was getting it left and right. And his boys got beat. Well, let's flip it, right? Last week, Texas Tech goes to Austin. Might have been two weeks ago, but more recently, Texas Tech goes to Austin, right? You're thinking, man, those Texas fans are going to be crazy. They're going to be chomping at the bit. They want their revenge. Nope. That was the weekend that everybody in the city of Lubbock, Texas, decided, hey, it would be really nice on a mid-February afternoon on a Saturday. Why don't we go up to Austin? I was just going to take a drive. It's a short plane ride. Not that long of a drive, a couple hours. And they took that place over in Chris Beard's backyard. Texas Tech is a lover scorned. They're coming out for revenge. And the best part is their new head coach was an assistant under Chris Beard. He knows exactly what he's got to do. He knows the playbook. My favorite play for Big 12 championship, Texas Tech. And uh, I'll see if I can pull up if they even have the odds for. Oh, yeah, look at that. Action Network. Unbelievable. Texas Tech, plus 409 to win the Big 12 Conference. Plus 409. Put the money on it now. If you want a long shot for that one, by the way, Iowa State. 
that's a team. I think they'll be like the five seed, and you're getting plus 4,800 for those odds. Probably throw TCU in the mix too. You're getting some big time, big time odds for Iowa State and TCU. And crazily enough, I think either one of them could end up winning the Big 12 tournament. Uh, Let's see here. I want to switch from – well, actually here, before we switch to the Final Four from championship, uh, I want to take you through some real, real long shots here. Um, Providence just won their first ever – Big 12, a uh, big East championship, uh, regular season. Ed Cooley's an awesome coach. He's from that area. He's a great guy. He's one of my favorite people in all of college sports. I absolutely adore him. And I love that team. And they're, they remind me a lot of past Villanova teams, scrappy, find ways to win games, taking good shots, not making mistakes, not beating themselves. They have a lot of experience. They have a lot of experience on that Providence roster because of the super seniors, which, by the way, exist around college basketball, right? That extra year that everyone got because of COVID has allowed all of these fifth, sixth, in some cases, even seventh year guys who are still playing because of that extra year of eligibility. So that knowledge, when you're a 24 year old playing in your fifth year of eligibility and you're going up against 18 year olds. Think about the cognitive development difference, how much more basketball you've played, especially if you have experience in the tournament. I love Providence, and you can get them as high as plus uh, 10,000 on like DraftKings. You can get it for about, on average, about plus 7,500 to plus eight, or plus 7,500, plus 8,000, somewhere in that ballpark. I love Providence as a long shot bet. Uh, and, and I think, again, Ed Cooley, believe in the coach, believe in the backcourt, right? Those are like the two biggest things for me when when I'm talking about who I like in the NCAA tournament. Do you like the backcourt? Do you like the head coach? Do you trust them to win big games? And if you do, don't overthink it more than that. Because then third on the list would probably be like, hey, do you have a lottery pick? But even still, lottery picks don't always go on to win championships. We don't see it all that often. Right. I, I think Davian Mitchell might have been the only lottery pick that came out of Baylor last year. You had DeAndre Hutton Hunter on, on Virginia before that. Villanova, I don't think they had a lottery pick on that last team. Jalen Brunson was the main guy who got drafted out of that. And he's obviously been probably should have been a lottery pick because I think Jalen Brunson's awesome, but he wasn't. So you need at least one good pro, a guy who you know is going to get drafted, maybe a lottery pick. Um, and then good backcourt, experienced backcourt, and a good coach. Those are your three things. Providence has all of that. They have a couple guys in there that will sniff around the NBA. Might be a Jalen Brunson type, so I like them. Um, Wisconsin, I, I would throw them in this mix. They're plus 7,000. Uh, again, Greg Gard, really good head coach. Um, Johnny Davis is probably top five player in college basketball this year. He's going to end up being a, um, a finalist for the player of the year, the Naismith, um, and probably deservedly so. Uh, some other long shots, LSU, uh, they, they've dipped down a little bit from where they were to start the season, but they got the firepower there, man. The only question with LSU for me is, what do we think of Will Wade? Because between some of the suspension stuff and the off-court stuff, we haven't seen him take LSU to uh, any sort of real run. I think they had a, they had a run to the SEC championship last year. 
in conference play, but I don't think we've really seen them do anything in the tournament. So that's the one question mark, but I love the team and, and I love the roster around them as well. Um, other than that, when you're looking at like long, long shots, there's not a whole lot of teams up there um, that I, that I love. Definitely no one near Providence. Uh, you can always throw a little bit on UConn, right? We've seen them win it all as an eight seed, uh, but that's really where I would hold. Again, these is, this is for winning the championship, not just for, you know, Hey, we're, you know, final four or whatever, but that's what I'm, we're going to switch to next year before we wrap up the pod um, odds to make the final four. Now we're going to be talking about a lot of the same teams, but this is an area where I think you can bet on guys who have a lot higher upside, right? Like a team like Duke who has, a top two pick in Palo on their team, right? Team like Gonzaga, Gonzaga is minus 115 to make the final four. To me, I'm not betting that because you're just getting zero value, but I would expect Gonzaga with Chet Holmgren and with some of the young guys that they have there to make a run. But this is where you're seeing teams like Purdue. Could Purdue with that offense get to a final four and then that's when all of a sudden the defense, they get a cold shooting night. I think that's a possibility. Um, I would also say this too. If you really like a team to make it to the final four or even to win it, double down, take a little bit of that extra. If you think a team's going to make it to the NCAA championship, take them to go to the final four. If you think they're going to win, sprinkle a little bit more, buy into your bet. <clears throat> I'd say right now, the, the, the one that's been screaming out to me when I was going through these earlier, Texas tech plus 500 to make the final four. I love that bet. Um, they were again, just the national championship a couple of years ago. Now we're going to get a chance to see if they can maybe, you know, find a way back there without Chris Beard. That would be an ultimate fuck you. They're going to have a lot of that. Houston to go back and UCLA, both of them to go back to the Final Four. UCLA's plus 550. Houston's plus 750. If I'm going to pick one of the two, I'm going to lean Houston because as much as I like Johnny Juzang and, and some of the guys on that UCLA team, that team wasn't nearly as talented uh, as Houston is. They're just not. And, and I think Kevin Sampson um, or Calvin Sampson is, is one of the best, again, coaches that probably not a lot of people know about. And, and the job he's done at Houston um, two years in a row to be in a position like that is awesome. But then you sneak down a little bit on the list, and this is where I think you can see a lot of value because I would put, and you know what, I'm probably going to, Arkansas and Alabama are both plus 1,200. Now, on FanDuel, you can actually get Alabama plus 1,600. I really like both of these teams. I really like both of these coaches. I really like the way that they both play basketball, and I think either one of them is a team that can get hot and go on a deep run. They're both plus 1,200 to make it to the Final Four. Give me both. Sprinkle a little bit on both because I – Deep down, I know they're both SEC. I think the teams are kind of similar in a lot of ways. I think there's a really good chance that they both find their way or one of the two will find their way to the final four. And obviously, you know, once the bracket comes out, if they're on the same side, whatever, if they're in the same, you know, quad, that'll change things. But I really like both of those teams. And I think they both know how to win big games. We saw Alabama right on the doorstep last year. We've seen Arkansas. We saw Arkansas make a pretty decent run last year as well. I think one of the two of them takes that leap and finds their way into the final four. Um, and as we close out here, you know, LSU, another team just talked about them, their team. I could see making a little bit of a run. 
If you want to find the Cinderella's, Murray State is a fantastic choice, plus 3,000 to get to the Final Four. There's not always a Cinderella like that, but if there's one this year, I'll take the one that's ranked in the top 25. Mount St. Mary's, another one, right? They just upset um, uh, – what do you <laughs> – just blanked on it. They just upset Gonzaga over the weekend. Um, right now, they're actually uh, plus 1750. Again, good odds, but if you're on DraftKings, you can get it for plus 4,000. So look around, see where you can get other places, right? St. Mary's is plus 1600 on FanDuel for the future. They're plus 4,000 on DraftKings. So don't be afraid to look around, find, find a betting site, find the best number that you can if you're on you know, multiple betting sites. And then I'll leave this here too. I mentioned them a little bit ago. But Iowa State plus 4,000 to make it to the final four. They have a kid, Brockington. Holy shit. He dropped, I think it was 35 or 42 the other night. Like this dude, one man wrecking crew. Uh, I would, I'm definitely going to pick them to win whatever their first round matchup is in, in the tournament. But again, they're a team that if they can get hot and because they play in the Big 12, which every single night you're playing a quad one or a quad two team. Every single night, they're getting tested against some of the best in the country. What do you think is going to happen when they get, you know, Oregon lined up in front of them? Or what's going to happen if they play a, a Miami or, you know, a Memphis or Indiana, right? Teams that are pretty good, but have not gone anywhere near down the stretch that we've seen, you know, Iowa State have to go through with playing you know when the worst team you're playing in your conference is west virginia and bob huggins and, and again a good bob huggins team tcu's tournament team um, texas obviously tournament team oklahoma is right on the border right now maybe probably won't get in but they might i mean that's like the bottom levels that's the bottom half of, of the big 12 and those are the teams that they're playing iowa state's a really good team like just top to bottom i'm a big Big fan of Iowa State, of Brockington, of, of the team that they have assembled there. And I'll, I'll tell you right now, I'm, I'm pulling up uh, Iowa State right now is overall 20 and 9. Underneath them, they have Oklahoma State, who's right around 500. They got Kansas State, right around 500. Oklahoma, game above 500. West Virginia, game under 500. That's the bottom four teams in the Big 12. And Iowa State is 20 and nine with TCU, Texas. They all have nine losses. I really believe Iowa State, as a dark horse, has a chance to win you a lot of money. So if there's one thing you're going to take away from this, bet on Iowa State to win their first round matchup, whoever it ends up being. Put a future on them to win the Big 12. I think I told you it was like plus 4,000. And fuck it, put a little bit on them to go to the final four. Because again, you're getting ridiculous odds. And they're not a team that's going to win a title. But when you play in that conference and you're going up against good teams every single night, once you get to the tournament, you will be prepped in ways that other schools aren't. And remember, strong backcourt. Do you trust the coast coach? Strong experience backcourt. Do you trust the coach? And is there an NBA player on the roster? Those are your three things. I said the same thing last year. Those are your three benchmarks 
to start thinking about as we head into the madness. Uh, that's all we got on the show today. Uh, Scotty Vito weren't feeling great. So well, Vito was traveling. Scotty wasn't feeling great. So ideally, we'll all be back together on Friday for maybe a little reunion. We'll talk some NFL storylines um, and whatever else kind of pops up. I know Scotty's been all over the lockout stuff. I know he's been all over college basketball, so we'll definitely hit some of this again with him. Uh, and conference championship week or conference tournament week uh, weeks uh, start now. So get ready. College basketball. As my man Mark Packer says, get it all over yourself because it's coming. Uh, have a wonderful rest of your week, ladies and gentlemen. And uh, we'll talk to you guys on Friday. How's that sound? I think it sounds good. Take it easy, everybody. <laughs>